Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. If the twin trends of population growth and richer diets continue, experts say that by 2050, we'll need to double the amount of crops we grow. Jonathan Foley is author of Feeding 9 Billion. That's the cover story for the May edition of National Geographic. He's director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. And he led a team of scientists who confronted a simple question. How can the world double the availability of food while simultaneously cutting the environmental harm caused by agriculture? Foley's team proposed five steps he says could solve the world's food dilemma. And those steps are outlined in the May edition of Feeding 9 Billion. good place to go is natgeofood.com. Jonathan Foley, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. That's a pretty stark statistic. Um, we'll need to double the current uh, uh, output of agriculture uh, to feed uh, the amount of people in, in the world. Why would we have to double the amount of food? Well, we don't, um, the math works out as the following, basically. We have about 7 billion people in the world right now, and if we don't do more to curb our population growth, we'll be heading towards about 9 billion by the middle of the century. Uh, that's about 28% more people, like uh, 2 billion added to 7. So part of the problem is that we'll have more mouths to feed, period. But the bigger part of the problem is that there are already 3 to 4 billion people in the world right now who are getting richer, who are eating more uh, kind of rich diets along the way, too, with more meat and dairy products and fats and oils and so on. So it's that kind of one-two punch of more people and richer diets. Add together that if we change our ways, and we can, of course, but if we don't change the road we're on right now, we'd need to have about twice as much food grown every year by 2050 as we do today. Uh, I don't know if we can do that without also addressing those demand factors like population, but especially diets. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we will grow twice as much food, but that's the road we're on right now. And so th this is the question you looked at with, you, with your team. How, how can we do that and simultaneously reduce the environmental damage caused by agriculture? And that was surprising to me. You say in your article, agriculture is among the greatest contributors to global warming, emitting more greenhouse gases than all of our cars, trucks, trains, and airplanes combined. Yeah, by almost twice as much. Um, yeah, it's extraordinary. It turns out agriculture, um, it's not a dirty business. It's not like a big factory pumping out lots of stuff into the environment, but it's so pervasive. It covers so much of the world, and it uses so much of our resources. In fact, agriculture right now uses about 38% of all the land we have on the planet. It's 70% of all the water we use in the world, um, mainly to irrigate crops. And it's about a third or so of all the greenhouse gas emissions that we have as a society are from agriculture, mainly from deforestation, methane from cattle and rice fields, and something called um, nitrous oxide that's released when we over-fertilize our fields. So um, ag is a big contributor to environmental problems, and we've got to figure out how to feed the world, but also not degrade the environment. Um, we need to do both of those things. Agriculture also accelerates the loss of biodiversity. I guess that, that, that's a result of clearing so much land? Well, primarily, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the biggest impact for biodiversity and all the habitats and you know critters that we like to keep out there is clearing the land they used to live on and turning it into a monoculture for us. But also, um, agriculture affects the biodiversity and habitats around the farmer's fields sometimes because of runoff, pollution, and other things that happen, too. 
Uh, but primarily it's by clearing so much land. And now we're clearing things like tropical rainforest um, in the Amazon and especially in Indonesia, where uh, some incredible biodiversity happens to reside. In fact, some of the richest, most diverse ecosystems in the world are the things being cleared today, which is really kind of a tragedy. Mm. I, I thought we'd been making some progress on, on clearing the land. It's, I guess it crops up in, in, in different areas. Well, yes, you're right. There is good news here, too. While a lot of clearing still continues, especially in Indonesia and other very sensitive places, uh, Brazil has seen a massive improvement in their deforestation. In fact, about 60, 70, maybe more percent drop in deforestation rates has occurred in Brazil in the last, uh, I don't know, six, seven years. And um, that's been great for um, helping to preserve the forests that are there and their biodiversity, but also cutting the greenhouse gas emissions, the CO2 emissions that come from burning forests. When we burn forests, it's not that different than burning coal and oil. Um, they're both releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. So um, when Brazil dropped its deforestation rate so much, it was they basically cut their greenhouse gas emissions more than if every American turned off their car forever. So it's an extraordinarily good news, but we need more good news like that around other parts of the world, too. Mm. Well, I'm loath to admit it. Sometimes these things are best explained visually, and so I encourage people to uh, go and look at your uh, TED talk. Uh, it, it was you showed some some images there that just just were amazing on this. Uh, a picture, for example, I think in Brazil, somewhere in South America, you could see uh, from satellite image just one lone little road in this vast landscape. Fast forward 20 years or so, and it's it's all been cleared. Well, that's right. I mean, even the most remote places in the world, like, um, you know, the frontiers of the Amazon or the middle of, you know, islands of uh, Indonesia, um, those are being cleared. And not only is that happening really quickly, they're also being cleared to ship things halfway across the world. Um, like a lot of the land in Brazil is used to grow soybeans, and a lot of those soybeans end up being shipped to China, believe it or not, to be fed to pigs, because as Chinese people get wealthier and move to the city, their appetite for pork has increased dramatically. So this is kind of globalization, um, you know, changing the face of the planet quite literally in a very short amount of time. So, uh, yeah, it's extraordinary to see those changes unfolding underneath our feet, so to speak. There's an extraordinary picture in, in National Geographic, if you pick up the May edition or go online. Uh, there's a, a bunch of cleared land. In the middle of it, there's this strip of uh, trees I think this is Brazil, and this particular tree was protected by law, but everything else around it is, has been cleared. Yeah, well, interestingly, Brazil has more strict laws uh, than we do in the U.S., um, and it's required basically that you can't clear forest if it touches the water. Uh, and you have to keep a certain amount of land in forest at all times. Uh, we don't have that law in the U.S. You can plow you know, all the way to the river uh, if you want to in much of the U.S., so um, while that looks pretty startling, the, I guess, good news, if there is some, is that they're at least trying to protect buffer strips and strips of forest in many places. And Brazil has some of the most advanced uh, agriculture in the world and is trying very hard to protect its forest. Uh, Brazil is talking about maybe being a place where no net deforestation would occur by 2020. So while a lot of clearing has happened in Brazil, I think there's a lot of hope that they are going to stop that pretty soon and maybe even reverse it in some places. That would be tremendous. But there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, that, that's hopeful. But maybe it could be even reversed. Well, there's really no reason why we can't try to recover land that we've degraded. Um, 
While, of course, the drumbeat of more food, well, you know, that's needed is happening every day, there are places where maybe we could begin to restore and rehabilitate land that's been maybe overexploited or um, places where the water has declined too much and we need to kind of restore back into its natural state. At the same time, though, we've got to figure out how to grow more food for a growing population and growing affluence. And that's kind of what our article talks about. Um, we first suggest we have to freeze the footprint of agriculture, stop clearing those rainforests, but simultaneously figure out how to boost the production of real food that feeds people on the land we already have. And there are many places in the world, in Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, and so on, where the yields are actually pretty low, where crop yields could be boosted quite a lot with relatively simple and effective kinds of methods that wouldn't have to harm the environment. So um, those so-called yield gaps, kind of where yields could be higher and they're not, are places where there are quite a few opportunities to grow more food without environmental or social harm, we hope. We're talking with uh, Jonathan Foley on the program today. He is the director of the Institute on the Environment at University of Minnesota and author of the cover story for the May edition of National Geographic that's out on stands now. You can go and look at this at natgeofood.com. Um, and this uh, uh, month's cover story, Feeding 9 Billion, is the first in an eighth-month uh, series on food. So check out National Geographic over over the next eight months. We're talking about uh, global food issues on the program. You're welcome to join us. What do you think? 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Jonathan Foley with us for the hour. You can join us by email as well to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Jonathan Foley, I, I was interested in, in, in something that's pretty prominent here in the article. You outlined five steps that we can take. If we would take those, uh, we we could uh, solve this problem. Uh, and mm-hmm. The problem you specifically addressed was doubling the, the the amount of food while at the same time reducing the environmental damage caused by agriculture. You say that this, uh, what we all know, of course, is a very polarized issue. On the one side, you have people who say we, we have to uh, use the you know, agribusiness, we have to use chemicals, we have to really ramp up uh, production. Um, on the other hand, you have people who say we got to get back to the land, you got to go local, got to go organic. And you say there's, uh, it, we, we have to get out of that polarization. We, there's a way we can, I guess, marry these two ideas, use both of them? Well, I think so. Um, I don't think it's very helpful to, you know, um, while shouting at each other is never really a great strategy to solve a problem, in my experience. Um, so I really like to see all farms and all consumers and all markets look to how do we solve the problem we all agree we need to solve, that is improve nutrition, improve the availability of food, and greatly reduce the environmental cost of producing it. Um, that has to happen along a continuum. Um, we can't just say everybody tomorrow must be 100% organic or tomorrow everyone must grow GMOs or whatever. That's never going to happen. So why don't we look at collaboration and improvement across the entire spectrum? And also, what can we learn from each other? Uh, There are a lot of techniques um, that organic farms use that could be adopted by every farm. And uh, if we could incentivize that and reward that, that might be a great idea. At the same time, uh, conventional farmers have some neat tricks with GPS and sensors and so-called precision agriculture using, you know, very, very sophisticated automation and sensing technology to very precisely monitor and um, uh, basically manage farms. Could that technique be implemented in the organic business? Of course it could. 
So I think there are a lot of techniques that are kind of agnostic to the kind of politics of all of this that could be used across the spectrum. And uh, that's really where I see the most hope is, you know, the appropriate sharing of technology and ideas and less polarization. Um, you know, all we have to do is look at Washington and see how polarization leads to inaction. What we need here is some action. And if we can tamp down some of that polarization and learn from each other rather than fighting each other on these kinds of issues, we might get a lot more progress. Hmm. I wonder, uh, you probably thought uh, about this, uh, no doubt, how how do we get past that polarization? Let me just use as an example one of the comments in the National Geographic magazine. This is uh, Ruth commenting online. Uh, she said, love National Geographic. I agree with the premise of your five steps. Don't agree with advocating any use of manufactured pesticides, herbicides, or GMOs. And and, mm-hmm. and, she, and she goes on. So that's one side. And I'm sure if you talk to, to Big Ag, uh, they would say, you know, we on the other side, we you, you can't feed the, the world on organic. So how, how would you suggest we get past that uh, that polarization? Well, I mean, there's the world of theory and the world of, you know, comments on a blog or something, uh, but there's the world out there. Um, the reality is that organic today, a certified organic, what we know to be organic is about 1% of the world's food production systems right now that is certified to be organic. Probably a fair amount more that is kind of organic, but maybe not certified. And uh, GMOs, the other end of the spectrum of technology, that's about 10% of the world's food uh, out there is growing GMOs. That means about 89% of the world's food is neither one and or is maybe some mixture of technologies. Um, so, you know, regardless of how I feel or that, uh, that, that um, reader felt or whatever, um, no one of us is going to make the decision for every farmer in the world about how they're going to farm. It, that's never going to happen. So anybody who thinks that's the plan, that tomorrow the other side will give up and everybody will just do what you think, that's never going to happen. So when we realize that and accept that, maybe we can work across the spectrum again and say, well, how could we all improve the environmental performance of farms, no matter what farm system you have, to get more nutrition and less harm to the environment? And I think there are improvements can be made in organic and conventional and GMO and all the rest. All of them could be better. Um, none of them are the perfect, perfect solution for everything. So um, let's get off our high horses and see how we can all work together to improve all of our systems, regardless of what system you think is best. Jonathan Foley is with us, uh, talking about a very interesting and pressing problem of feeding $9 billion. That's the title of the cover story for the May edition of National Geographic. It's out now. Uh, it's the first of an eight-month series on food that you'll find in National Geographic. Jonathan Foley is a director of the Institute on the Environment at University of Minnesota. He led a team of scientists who confronted this simple and very important question, how can the world double the availability of food? That's what we'll need in the next 50 years or so, uh, while simultaneously cutting the environmental harm caused by agriculture. And he says that there are five steps that if we would follow those, that would solve the world's food dilemma. We'll get into those solutions following a brief break. Next time on Living on Earth, pet flea collars kill fleas and ticks, but can be dangerous for the household. When kids come in contact with their pet, which they do on a daily basis, they come into contact with that very toxic pesticide. The EPA will ban some flea collars, but not all, and not very soon. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Monday morning at 3 and Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Whether you're 2050, uh, odds are, or the projections are, that there will be some 9 billion people in the world. Uh, And as uh, developing countries get a little more affluent, people uh, tend to eat a richer diet that's less efficient. Less of the food that's raised goes directly into people's stomachs. And so, estimates are we'll need to double the amount of crops we grow. But, of course, we also need to simultaneously cut the environmental harm caused by agriculture. Jonathan Foley is director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. He led a team recently that uh, tackled that question. Their team, uh, his team proposed five steps, he says, could solve the world's food dilemma. He further says it needn't be an either-or proposition. In fact, it shouldn't be an either-or proposition. Big ag on the one side and organic farming on the other. We're going to have to cut through that. And you might be wondering, as, as am I, what can I do? Just one person in, in my town. Uh, we'll get into talking about that as well. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Jonathan Foley, uh, let, let's jump into these solutions. Uh, very interesting. And, and you're saying if we followed these, if we can actually get ourselves to do these, uh, this could solve the problem. Step one, freeze agriculture's footprint. Yeah, that's right. Um, these five steps um, start with the one where basically the amount of land we use to grow food is expanding, but it's expanding by cutting down some of the world's most great tropical rainforest in like Indonesia and Brazil and other places. We really have to stop that because it's contributing to massive declines of biodiversity and contributing to climate change. Um, and also what land we clear for these um, in these areas is not really feeding people who are hungry. It's growing things like soybeans for animals or beef or palm oil. These are things uh, that are going to the middle class and rich people of the world. And we, we like those things, but is it worth destroying the last rainforest in the world for? I, I would argue no. So step one is let's stop deforestation, and that leads to step two, which is how do we grow the food we need on the land we've already cleared long ago so we don't have to clear any more? And that's where we might want to look to developing countries and places where yields are kind of low compared to what they could be and see how we can close that yield gap between the farms that are there now and what they could be. And to do that in a way that's environmentally appropriate and socially appropriate, um, how we farm in Utah or Minnesota where I live, isn't going to work in much of Africa or Eastern Europe or Latin America. We have to really work with folks there and have them lead the way in terms of the farming systems they want to have that benefit local people and the environment and nutrition. Um, but there are lots of opportunities to do that around the world. And uh, interesting, you, you say that uh, you, we've talked about this divide and trying to close the divide. You say that t- techniques things we've learned on either side could be applied to the other. For example, very, very uh, big ag is using very precise uh, targeting of land and use of land uh, that could be used on the organic side, the local side, uh, developing countries. And there are some organic methods that could be applied, uh, uh, I guess, to, to big ag. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
I mean, for example, all farms benefit, I think, from, you know, doing things like cover crops, using legumes to help get nitrogen into the soil, improving soil organic matter, um, using what organic folks have pioneered as like integrated pest management, like letting, uh, you know, nature fight your pest for you by having more diverse farms that aren't one big monoculture for bugs and weeds to feast on. And uh, there are a lot of tricks from organic farming that could be applied to every farm in the world. Um, they're just they're often just common sense. They make a lot of sense. But organic is um, also has some restrictions. The way we do it in the U.S., um, like organic, um, you know, animal production is not allowed to use antibiotics. Now, I think that's smart to not use antibiotics every day to promote growth. But what if an animal becomes sick? Is it okay to use antibiotics then? And so there are things that might be hybrids of organic um, and conventional agriculture that might be pretty useful. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of organic, and I like to see organic systems be, you know, at least a lot of the principles be adopted by every farmer. But, you know, if a, if a you know, dairy operation needs some antibiotics once in a while, well, I'm okay with that. Um, so I think there are hybrids that are possible, but when you go to other countries, um, especially in poor countries, again, I think some of the uh, simpler, low-tech, organic approaches probably are the best place to start. Improve the conditions of your soils with you know, mulching and composting and manures, things like that. That has such a great big dividend, and it's appropriate for low-tech kind of hands-on farming. It's going to be a long, long time before, you know, precision ag and GPS are going to be available to every farm in the world. So let's start with the technologies we've had for generations and see what they can do, too. What about uh, chemicals, you know, the fertilizers and such that uh, mm-hmm. that have helped increase yields by, by a lot, but of course have a high uh, environmental price? Can we reduce well, those? Yeah, exactly. Um, the Green Revolution, as we call it, was kind of a trade-off. If we use more chemicals, more fertilizers, and more water and more energy, we got more food. Now we're going to have to figure out how to get more food, um, more nutritious food especially, uh, but with fewer chemicals um, and you know, fewer pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and so on, because if we don't use them perfectly, they run off into the environment or they stay on the food that we eat um, in some cases, and people are worried about that. So, yeah, we're going to have to get much smarter about that. And that, again, um, that can be done in conventional farms through precision technology using, you know, when you do spray, spray only what you need at the right time, exactly where it's needed and no more. That would help a lot. And also going toward the organic method, that helps greatly because they don't use any of that stuff. But, of course, even organic still has runoff. Um, Manure can run off and other things, too. So it's not 100% perfect. And that's, again, where I think we have to have, you know, improvements on all sides. Um, a well-managed conventional farm is just, you know, is, is a good thing, and so is a well-managed organic farm. What we need to do is just manage all of our farms as best we can and make continuous improvements along the whole spectrum and learn from each other. Hmm. I wonder about GMOs. This is sort of, you know, if you're trying to, <laughs> trying to walk the middle, middle path as you are, that's sort of a third rail uh, but uh, and you know it's very polarizing. Uh, can can a ramp up in in yield be done without GMOs? Can you what what would you say about GMOs? Well, uh, yeah, GMOs are kind of a third rail issue, and it's a good example of how polarization has just run out of control. Um, I, I would argue about eighty ninety percent of everything we hear about GMOs on like Facebook or whatever is basically nonsense. Um, but if you dig into the science of this, um, my and I try very hard to be neutral in GMOs, but I have to say uh, GMOs are often kind of oversold. 
Uh, for, they're mainly used for corn and soybeans in the United States, but also for cotton, canola, and sugar beets. Those are the kind of big five crops for GMOs here. Um, for corn and soybeans, the biggest use of GMOs, they don't improve yields at all. Um, there have been study after study after study shows that they don't improve yields in those crops. Although they do, it seems, for cotton, especially in other countries, and sometimes canola and sugar beets. So the yield improvements for GMOs are, are really not that great uh, overall, I would argue, and nor should they have been. Uh, the first GMOs were intended to help plants resist weeds or herbicides, basically, and pests, especially insects. But even those benefits are beginning to disappear as insects and weeds become resistant to GMO traits or to things like Roundup. So, um, you know, and we're basically creating a treadmill, just as happened with antibiotics. If we overuse a technology, nature finds a way around it. So the insects and especially the weeds are becoming resistant to this first generation of GMO technology, just as we all knew it would. And so I don't know if there's been huge benefits to uh, consumers or, you know, uh, people who eat food. I don't think GMOs have helped very much. But they have helped farmers. Um, it's made farms more profitable, uses less labor. It's more of a turnkey, simple solution. Um, and, you know, I can see why farmers like GMOs, but I also can see why other folks probably don't. Um, and so that's why this debate continues. And I think um, we have to be careful to listen to both sides of this debate and understand from different points of view. There may be different perspectives on GMOs. But uh, I, I'd come down on the, they haven't really helped that much in terms of feeding the world. In fact, I'd argue they haven't helped really much at all. But could they in the future? Do we need a GMO if a new disease breaks out, um, like papaya in Hawaii? If it weren't for GMOs, we wouldn't have any anymore in Hawaii. Or um, citrus greening disease. The New York Times ran an interesting article about a new disease showing up in oranges. If we need a GMO to continue to make orange juice, how would you feel then? I don't know. Um, but I think uh, GMOs may need to be still in our toolbox, but maybe as a last resort in some cases or used very, very appropriately. And I don't think we've done such a good job of that so far. You just joined us. We're talking with Jonathan Foley, who is director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. He's also author of National Geographic Magazine's May cover story, Feeding Nine Billion. It's the first of an eight-month series on food. You can go to natgeofood.com to see more. Of course, the stunning photographs, as is usual in National Geographic, and very interesting discussion. Jonathan Foley says that we will likely need to double the amount of crops we grow by 2050 to feed the people in the world. That's because population is growing. We'll be at about 9 billion people by uh, that time, 2050. And as uh, countries develop... People eat richer diets. That's a less efficient uh, diet for, for feeding uh, people. Uh, goes through through animals and then, then it gets to our stomachs. Uh, and, and so he says uh, that his team has proposed five steps. We're going through those steps, and they're outlined in the National Geographic. He says that could solve the world's food dilemma if we'll follow them. And the number to reach this program, we'd love to hear your perspective, especially on what you're doing, what you feel you can do. We'll ask Johnson Foley that as well. 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com. Jonathan Foley, uh, so the, the first step, and we've talked about this, is to uh, freeze the uh, current uh, amount of land. In other words, don't clear-cut any more land for, for growing food. Step two, grow more on the farms we've uh, we've got. Uh 
close down those yield gaps. Step three, we've gotten into talking about a little bit, use resources more efficiently. I want to talk a bit about water. We're, we're mm-hmm. listening to this program in the second driest state in the United States uh, here in Utah, right next to Nevada, the driest state in the Union. Um, and of, over the years, you know, there's, there's been advances and ongoing debates on how best to use that water, especially when it comes to agriculture. And sometimes that comes up against uh, agriculture tradition. I wonder if you have you seen uh, areas in the world where they have uh, ramped up their efficient use of water? Well, certainly, um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, water is crucial for agriculture, and you you are living in one of the places where you know that's so um, so right in front of you every day. That's extremely important. And of course, what we're seeing in California now with their drought um, in the Central Valley as well. So, uh, yeah, water is crucial for agriculture, but we could do better because, um, like the Israelis, for example, have been using a system of agriculture um, that relies on drip irrigation, using basically small little tubes that in the soil where water is slowly percolating right into the roots. And maybe it can be controlled by computers and little valves to get water just enough to keep the plants going, but no more. And it's very, very efficient with water, maybe 10 times more efficient than a lot of the agriculture seen around the world in terms of how much food you get for the same amount of water. Um, so, you know, that's a really promising technique, but obviously it requires some money. you got to put the tubes in and the little valves and maybe the computers and the sensors. But in places where water is precious, that could be a very effective thing. And for the Israelis, it's a security issue. In the U.S., though, we've had a history of subsidizing water. You know, taxpayers pay for the water, and then some folks get the benefit of it. And when the water runs out, well, then taxpayers are often on the hook again to pay for, you know, insurance or other things that some farmers collect um, if the crops fail. So um, we as a greater public have to ask ourselves, what do we do with our public money and our public investments in agriculture and especially water? Um, And where are the trade-offs between the uses of water for agriculture or for cities, or for energy production and industry, and uh, also for nature. Those are the four big kind of uses of water, and how do they get allocated? Who gets what and when and where? And the history of water in the American West is a long, long, convoluted, complex history that would have many more hours to talk about to get even to the beginning of that. And so um, we're going to have to keep working on that. But the good news is technology could do a lot to improve the efficiency but again and again, the economics and politics of this are often what get in the way of getting to that solution. Mm. I believe you're, you're you're soon gonna gonna be moving to California, taking a new job. Yeah, um, that's right. I'm um, I've accepted just the other day a new job to become the uh, director of the California Academy of Sciences, which uh, is based in Golden Gate Park. is uh, It's the largest cultural attraction uh, west of the Mississippi, um, and it's a big science museum that also does research on biodiversity and the environment all over the world. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited about it, though, though sad to leave Minnesota, where I've been very, very happy as well. But the idea there is to really focus uh, you know, the public's attention on how do we get the best possible science into the widest possible conversation around issues like this, around you know, how do we make the environment more sustainable while also keeping you know, society um, safe and secure, prosperous, and healthy. And uh, we're going to need every, every hand on deck to uh, try to get to that problem. And uh, that's why I want to focus a bit more on this sort of public engagement of science. Uh, so I was just wondering about that. Uh, you, how do you do that? You start conversations, I guess, like this one. You you go out to have scientists get out there more. You get the public talking to each other. 
cross those divides a little more? What, how, how do you accomplish that? Well, <laughs> I'll let you know if I figure it out. Um, but I think where we need to try is, um, unfortunately, most scientists are trained to, you know, are very good in the lab and behind, you know, computer screens. And that's sort of how we're trained. And uh, very few uh, scientists, as they're trained in school, really, you know, learn how to talk to regular folks. Um, in fact, we're almost taught not to do that by talking these really weird, you know, kind of languages and acronyms and writing in ways nobody could possibly want to read. And uh, I think we have to undo some of that. One of my big passions is um, in universities, how do we train our science students to, you know, like, hey, speak regular English, you know, like uh, make it, you know, you don't have to use a 25-syllable word when a one-syllable word will do. And also, you know, kind of keep connected to your roots. Um, you know, I grew up in a really small town in Maine, and, uh, you know, I like going back there. And, you know, if I can't figure out how to talk to, you know, somebody in the diner or in the barbershop, then I'm not doing my job very well. So I think a lot of that has to happen, you know, just kind of, basic stuff like that but also um how can we work with media like like your you know the radio stations like yours or with national geographic and how do we have a more real conversation around these issues um i think that would help a lot and also how do we reach influentials uh, in business government uh nonprofits, and so on i think uh scientists you know really have a moral responsibility to be part of those conversations and you know let you know share what we know and what we don't know with folks who are making important decisions every day we're talking with Jonathan Foley, who is a director of the Institute on the Environment, University of Minnesota, and he's author of National Geographic Magazine's May cover story. It's called Feeding Nine Billion. It's the first in an eight-month series on food. For more information, you can go to natgeofood.com. The dilemma is we'll likely need to double the amount of crops we grow in the world by 2050, um, and of course we want to, at the same time, cut the environmental harm caused by agriculture. Jonathan Foley recently led a team which uh, sought to answer that dilemma. He says there are five steps that could solve the world's food dilemma if we would follow those. We'll get to the last two steps uh, following a break. And this gets us into maybe what you and I can do. Uh, He says it would be far easier to feed 9 billion people by 2050 if more of the crops we grew ended up in human stomachs. That gets into shifting diets. More on that following the break. With the rise in the oil and gas industry, communities are growing and local economies are booming. We want to hear your stories about living with oil and gas in Utah and surrounding areas. Let us know how the boom is affecting your family, your community, and your local job or business. Tell us what's on your mind when the oil and gas are just down the street. To share your experience, join our public insight network. Visit upr.org and then click on Become a Source. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Elon Magazine, a bi-monthly artistic celebration of inspirational stories from extraordinary women, defining the Southwest lifestyle through culture, art, and adventure. Information at elonwoman.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jonathan Foley. He is director of the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota and author of the May cover story, National Geographic's, titled Feeding Nine Billion. It's the first in an eight-month series on food. You can find out much more on this by going to natgeofood.com. The dilemma is, if trends continue, we'll need to double, by 2050, we'll need to double the amount of crops we grow. At the same time, we want to cut environmental harm caused by agriculture. 
Jonathan Foley recently led a team which uh, tackled that problem, and they've proposed five steps Jonathan Foley says could solve the world's food dilemma. Uh, step four, this is something, I, I guess, the uh, most direct control of, of you and me, shifting diets. Jonathan Foley, you say in the magazine, it would be far easier to feed 9 billion people by 2050 if more of the crops we grew ended up in human stomachs. What uh, outlined the problem there? Um, as you say, yeah, the, um, what we found, of course, is that a lot of the crops grown in the world, um, and I don't mean grazing land. I mean, in Utah and other places in the American West, there are lots of areas of grassland and shrubland that really couldn't grow food uh, as crops, but they can be used to graze animals. That land is actually producing a lot of food, and that's, that's great. Um, that's a good use of that land in some ways, as long as we do it sustainably. But in the Midwest, where I live, for example, we grow a lot of row crops, like corn and soybeans, for example, that are often fed, primarily fed to animals, and often also to make ethanol. Um, and we like animals. We like bacon. We like chicken. We like beef and all that stuff. And we like dairy products. So, you know, that's a big part of our economy. But that's not a very efficient way to make food. Um, for every 100 calories of corn we grow in the Midwest, for example, um, we may only get 40 calories of milk or maybe, you know, 20 calories of eggs or 10 calories of chicken or maybe four calories of beef, for example, maybe three. So um, that's not going to be the most efficient way to get food. It's a richer food. Um, we like that kind of food. But if we uh, eat it in abundance and maybe too much, it's really kind of a waste of the, the productivity of that agriculture in terms of how many people we could feed. So um, that's the big dilemma. We like meat. Uh, as Americans and many people in the world are increasing their meat consumption, but it takes more resources to grow it, period. It's just physics. So can we figure out how to grow meat and dairy more efficiently is one solution, of course. But also, do we want to cut back on the demand of some of those products, um, especially if they help our health and other things that maybe we want to accomplish as well? So I guess one logical extension of what you're saying is that uh – I could help the world by becoming vegetarian. Is that uh, do I have to do that, or, or well, um, more people did that? I'm not. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, so I'm not going to tell anybody else they should be. Um, they have to become a vegetarian. But certainly, the average vegetarian diet is lighter on the planet than an average meat diet. But um, maybe there's room for wiggle room in the middle. Like eating, I eat less beef than I used to. Maybe more chicken. Uh, I try to eat less meat overall. And I certainly try to make sure whatever I'm eating for dairy and meat um, that I'm very, um, you know, try to be very conscious of it and make sure that it's not wasted. When you're wasting, uh, let's say you throw out a pound of hamburger for some reason, it's like throwing out hundreds of pounds of vegetables or something in terms of the resources it may have taken to grow that. So um, we need to be careful about that. Um, I think, you know, uh, and also, as I mentioned, you know, grass-fed uh, kind of animals or animals that are fed on things that otherwise could go to waste, that's still fine. Um and in terms of the efficiency. Now, of course, you know, people become vegetarians for other reasons as well, um, because of uh, animal uh, rights issues or their own um, kind of um, uh, personal beliefs, and I respect that. But I think um, you know, everybody will come out with a different answer on this. But as, as a society as a whole, could we find ways to be healthier, uh, eating different kinds of diets, and also lighter to the environment? Sure, we could do both. And I think that has some meat in the diet, but maybe less than we consume now. How do you how do you best sell this in developing countries where I I, I could see this as a status simple? You're you're moving in the wrong direction in, in terms of the overall problem. You're eating more meat because we're more prosperous now. 
Well, right. In some countries, adding meat to the diet is actually probably a very good thing nutritionally, um, where you know people are very poor and maybe are lacking certain key uh, nutrients. And often you can get those with plant-based diets, but meat is a, often a very convenient package to get certain nutrients. So, you know, in some places that's probably helpful. But in others, yeah, they're following the path of Europe and the United States of eating a lot more meat than uh, any time in history anybody's ever eaten before. So uh, at least in modern history. So I think we have to kind of see what we can do in rich countries, but also, um, you know, how will China and India and other countries, as they get much, much richer very quickly, where those diets are headed. And right now they're heading kind of towards the diets we have, at least in that direction. And, uh, you know, the, the future diet of China and India will have a lot to do with agriculture around the world. It already is. So um, I think we have work to do in places that already have um, high-resource diets like us and uh, places that are making that transition. Anything we can do to nudge those um, probably be helpful. And, and, of course, a lot of people say, oh, you can't do that. Uh, nobody will change your diets. I'm like, well, actually, we change our diets all the time. Uh, food fads, uh, you know, things that become popular. I mean, think of the restaurants we had in America in the 60s, and now think about what you see in an average town today. They're dramatically different. So um, people change their diets and behaviors constantly, but we seem to be changing them often for maybe the worse sometimes um, as obesity is taking over the country and as we eat more and more junk food. Um, but there's also hopeful signs. More and more people are eating healthier, trying to do more you know, local food or you know, understand their food system, that kind of thing. Um, that's good, too. So what can we do to encourage better behavior and change, not just um, behavior and change that isn't so good? What about the economics of this? I was just thinking that, uh, you know, the probably one of the biggest changers of um, of diet for me and probably for a lot of people would be cost. And if you yep. co- cost this out in, in the right way, that probably would encourage me to eat less meat and, and ramp up uh, fruits and, and vegetables. Some of this is subsidized, I, I think. We're, are there tweaks we can make in the costing structure? Well, certainly, and, uh, and nobody uh, is going to get out there and say, hey, what we really need to do is make food more expensive. Um, you know, that's never going to get you elected to Congress or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, certainly um, to be fair, if we really look at the total cost of our food system, really, and thinking of how do we pay for that as taxpayers in terms of subsidies to some kinds of agriculture, but not others? Uh, why do we make those choices? Is it for our health? Is it benefiting our country as a whole? Um, not always. Let's just be kind and say that. Um, also, you know, what do we cost? What is the cost of food to the environment, and who pays to clean that up? What's the cost of food system to our diets, our health, and our healthcare system, and who pays for that? So, I think a, a very, you know, and Utah's a pretty conservative state, right? And I think it's a very good conservative argument to say, wait a minute, you know, we as taxpayers are paying billions and billions of dollars a year into our food system. And what benefits do we get for that as a country, as a society? And should we be getting the best bargain we can with our public money on health care, environment, agriculture, subsidies, food stamps, and so on? I want to get the best deal we can as a public dollar for any investment we make. And I'm not sure we're getting it. So um, the economics of this are partly market-based and partly, you know, kind of manipulated by subsidies and policies we set as a government. Are we doing a good job of that? And I think we could do better. Let's just say that. Uh, one other thing you mentioned in your, in your article is uh, you say it would be a good idea to reduce the amount of uh, food crops we use for biofuels. 
Well, I, I think it's a complicated issue. I, from purely the point of view of having more food to feed the world, um, yeah, it's kind of common sense that if you don't use some crops for biofuels, you'll have more available to feed people or animals. Um, but, of course, biofuels meet another need um, that you know we might have as a country of trying to grow more of our, our energy sources domestically. So um, that argument for food is one way, but for energy and um, also to you know, pump money into rural economies of the Midwest, um, ethanol policy might be seen as very beneficial. So that's where that debate is. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, ethanol mandate in the United States is um, of mixed benefit. Uh, certainly it benefits rural places in the Midwest. Uh, I live in Minnesota. And there are a lot of towns around here that are kind of being kept alive thanks to the ethanol industry. Um, and so I'm sure folks are very thankful for that. At the same time, though, it's a you know it costs the the greater public uh, a lot of money over the years to get that system in place, and I think most Americans don't really want ethanol in their gas tanks necessarily, or not more of it. So there are competing interests here, and what that does to the price of corn and crops all around the world is still um, you know still being debated. So it's a complicated issue, but clearly, um, if we use too much of our food to turn into fuel. We're making a trade-off between food and fuel, and is it a good one? That's an important question. Uh, Brazil's another big biofuel country. They use sugar cane to make ethanol, which is uh, actually a lot more kind of efficient um, in turning um, the amount of energy it takes to grow sugar cane into ethanol. And they live in the tropics where you can grow this stuff year-round and very high productivity. Uh, that turns out to be a lot more kind of efficient than our corn-based systems, but there are improvements being made to all of these. I think it's something we need to watch, but... I would like to see um, biofuels made from waste and landfills and things that can't be used for food. That would be, um, I think, a much better trade-off, in my opinion. Final step that uh, proposed by your team to to solve this this problem of uh, doubling the amount of crops we're, we're raising by by 2050 and reducing the environmental uh, problems of agriculture is reducing waste. This, I guess, w- would also come under the heading of what can I do? And this is pretty stark. You write this in the, ar- in the article, National Geographic, an estimated 25% of the world's calories and up to 50% of total food weight are lost or wasted before they can be consumed. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So much of the world's food uh, is never eaten because it's lost somewhere in the, along the way. And around um, in the U.S., uh, most of the food we lose is in things like supermarkets, restaurants, cafeterias, and in our refrigerators. Uh, we all have these good intentions and in Tupperware in our fridge that don't quite make it into our stomachs. Um, so we need to really tackle that. In fact, I'd, maybe that should have been the number one recommendation because it's probably the biggest one of the five. And in poor countries, um, we also see food waste happening, but not maybe around the consumer, but mostly between the farmer and the market. Um, food might never be harvested or it might be uh, wiped out by insects or fungus or you know, um, rats or something, or maybe it never got to the market because of bad transportation networks um, and so on. So um, we have work to do in poor countries and rich countries alike about guaranteeing that everything we grow is actually feeding somebody um, and not being thrown away. And think of that. I mean, you know, maybe half of the food weight of the world is being lost or 25% of the calories. Wow, what a great opportunity that is. If we could cut that in half, I think we could do more than that, then that's a huge boon to feeding the world and helping the environment. And why isn't that getting the same kind of investment and uh, attention as, like, fancy technologies or, you know, more chemicals and that kind of thing? It's not getting anywhere near the same kind of investment. But it should. It should get more, I would argue. It's a big, big opportunity. 
So, so uh, smaller portions, uh, eating leftovers, etc. Programs like Second Harvest take on a, a whole new meaning uh, here. Well, absolutely. You know, where I work uh, at the University of Minnesota, for example, um, we have a, like a sustainability pledge that the university made to students, and one of the ideas was to cut down energy use and water use. So the uh, cafeterias and the dorms here uh, abandoned the use of cafeteria trays, uh, mainly to save water and time and energy from washing them all the time. But what they noticed is when students weren't being given a tray, this is like an all-you-can-eat kind of dorm cafeteria, students would get what they wanted. They could always go back for more if they were still hungry, but they ended up taking less. That old expression of, you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You give a 20-year-old kid a cafeteria tray, they're going to load it up with stuff even if they never eat it. So the side benefit, they noticed that there was vastly less food thrown away at the end of the day, which saved money, time, and labor, and food, of course. And uh, it was just kind of a side benefit of just moving the cafeteria trays away, but still giving people as much as they wanted. And multiply by every university in the country, every cafeteria in a hospital or a business, and say, how could we do better in those critical institutions? Um, They feed a lot of people every day. Also, restaurants, when they throw food away, they're throwing away profits, too. So I think there's good economic incentives to tweak the system and do it at scale, Um, you were asking what people can do. Well, we can do a lot of that in our own homes, but also don't forget where you work. Do you have a cafeteria at work? Do you work at a big firm or a hospital or a school? Maybe we could do something not only in our homes, but our places of employment as well. Yeah, very important. Well, very interesting. We're at the end of our time. Jonathan Foley is uh, director of the Institute on the Environment, University of Minnesota. He's also author of National Geographic Magazine's May cover story, Feeding Nine Billion, first in an eight-month series on food. For more information, you can go to natgeofood.com. Jonathan Foley, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And tomorrow on the program, we're going to revisit a conversation from a few months ago with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, her book on uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his vice president, William Howard Taft. Very interesting history. Doris Kearns Goodwin, tomorrow, hope you'll join us. For uh, producers uh, uh, Bennett Purser and Katie Swain, I'm uh, Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Commentator Thad Bach. Human population growth, economics, and climate change cause us to continually reevaluate our lives. Populations grow, climate triggers change, ecosystems change, economic systems change, social systems change. The larger system is never the same biologically, economically, or politically as it was before. Over 7 billion people occupy our planet today. These include some of the richest and some of the poorest people ever known. Some are educated, others illiterate. Some have internet access bringing advanced technology, others have no water in their homes. Some have well-balanced diets, others are slowly starving. The population is expected to reach 8 billion in the next 30 years. We don't know what they will want from the land. But if humankind is to survive, we must ensure that lands and people who work them stay healthy enough to contribute whatever is needed for human survival. And that is a task we can only imagine. We live in a world where the elite carry mobile devices that have the world's knowledge available at the click of a button. We must be able to understand and communicate with those folks, and also, though, to work to improve the lives of millions living in poverty 
and then develop science that allows a shrinking land base to sustain the children of both groups. And we must do this in a world where most people live in cities with little contact with the land that feeds them. Preference for animal protein for humans has changed from free-ranging animals to factory-raised hogs, chickens, and fish provided by a few companies. The farmer, even if he owns the land, is often at the mercy of some corporation. Will the next step be megacorporations contracting with farmers to raise insects or bacteria to make a fake chicken tender? Our job is not to be concerned about what people choose to eat, but to make sure that the land can provide food for them. We must make sure that both land and economic systems are sustainable, that there is fairness and balance as systems change and short-term gain will not prevent healthy land from being transferred to the next generation. That, if we choose to accept it, is our mission impossible. This is Thad Box. Are you a discerning music fan? Bad songs about the Irish smiles, uh, what you got the Tura and the Lura, and more Lura. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Sung by men with high voices. Tired of the musically uninteresting? Let me sing some of that to you here. Yeah, maybe later. How much later? Later, later. Okay. Or the overly earnest? I'll write songs, try to make the world a better place. There's a contradiction there, partner. We'll have you singing a different tune this weekend. Saturday evening at 6 and Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Our website now showcases the scenic vistas our state is known for. From the red rock of Monument Valley to the blue and green mountains of northern Utah, Utah Public Radio would like to thank artist Allison Hanover for her designs. Visit us online at upr.org. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 